James chapter 1 and verse 22. We'll also read out of Matthew chapter 22. James chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 22. I trust with God's help that we'll, we'll be helped today in the scriptures. I want to deal with something today that I think within the body of Christ there may be some confusion about how our Old Testament and how our New Testament lives, how do they connect? James 1 and verse 21 says this, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. That simply means be teachable. Have a teachable heart and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. I want us to pay very close attention to verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law of liberty. And continues in it. It is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. The perfect law of liberty. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And basically what Jesus did, he condensed everything down to these two commands. To love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Let's pray. Father, today we stand under your word. Today we stand before this open Bible with our hearts open. Father, praying that each of us would have meek hearts. We need to be taught. We need to be guided and instructed by the light of your word. Today I pray that you would lead us in paths of righteousness. That you would guide us and govern us by your word and by your spirit. Give us light. Give us help today to understand the life that pleases you. We do pray for our nation today. We pray, God, that you would turn us back to your truth. For the entrance of your word can give light again to our nation and can guide us into blessing. 
We thank you for what you have done in this nation. We thank you for the blessing and even the, even the residue of blessing that we're enjoying today that others have bought in the past. But we need to dig new trenches and new wells of blessing for the future generations. We ask for you, your mercy upon us today. And we ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen. I want to talk about the perfect law of liberty today. And I, I, I pray that you would play clo- pay uh, close attention because hopefully and, and prayerfully, I hope to bring, connect some things together that maybe you've been confused about. Because I, I do believe there's confusion in the body of Christ of how old covenant and new covenant is related together. How do they connect together? Have you ever heard someone say this verse? It's actually not a whole verse, but it's actually part of a verse. And they'll say something like this. You know, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Have you heard someone say that? Come on, amen. Amen. We're not under law, but under grace. And that is true statement. We're not under law, but but we are under grace. But actually, that's not even a whole verse. That's only part of that verse. And that's, uh, it's in Galatians 6, 14. The Bible does say we're not under law, but we're under grace. But the Bible says some things even before that. So the whole verse kind of goes like this. I don't have time to get in the whole chapter, but it says this. Sin shall not have dominion over you because we're not under law, but we're under grace. Oh, no, that's different. That's different. That's different than just saying, oh, you know, we're, we're not under that law. We're under grace. But yet it says, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law, but you're under grace. So do you see what I just did? Do you see what happens many times? In our modern day, I've seen this happen many times. I'm not impugning anyone's character because I think that we probably have all done that by mistake. Quote a verse, but maybe quote it out of context Quote it and, it, and, and, and give it a different meaning, a different shade than the Holy Spirit meant for it to give. And so you can clearly see, when I quoted the whole verse, you can clearly see that New Testament life, New Testament Christianity, it's not some kind of lawless, rebellious, sinful kind of life. But New Testament life under grace means that we are free. Anyone free in this place today? That we are free from the dominating power of sin. And we've been emancipated by the resurrected power and the blood of Christ. And we are free to live before holy God in a way that pleases him. So we don't need to quote half a verse. We need to quote an entire verse. So think about this. You're not under law. You're not under law. So what does that mean? I'm not under law. Does it mean, does it mean because we're not under law that there are no commands for New Testament Christians to obey? Is that what it means? Does not being under law, does it mean because I'm a New Testament believer that I'm not living, that, that, uh, that, uh, that are not living under the law, does that mean that sin does it matter because I'm not under law anymore? 
Or does not being under law, does that mean that we just believe without any consideration at all of a holy life? Is that what not being under law means? Or does it mean this? Does not being under law mean that if I seek to obey the commands of God, is that somehow equate legalism? Is obedience legalism? So the real question is this. The real question is, what place does God's command commands have in the life of a New Testament believer? That's the question. Does the grace, does grace mean that New Testament believers have no law to obey? Does it mean we have no commands to follow? The first thing I would point out in Matthew 5 are the very words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said himself, he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. Let's read the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 reads like this. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. Everybody say Jesus. These are his words. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, take it to the bank. I'm saying to this, assuredly, that till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law. Till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks just one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of of heaven. Did you hear what Jesus just said? Je- Jesus just said, je- je- the New Testament does not abrogate, alter, or replace the Old Testament, but Jesus came to fulfill it. Jesus did fulfill the Old Testament. He fulfilled the types. He fulfilled the shadows, the prophecies. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements. There's one man that was born into this world that never sinned, and his name is Jesus. He is the sinless son of God, not in word, not in thought, not in deed. Now, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but not him. He kept it perfectly. Notice Jesus says, if you break the least of one of these commands, you'll be called least. That shows us this. That shows us that the truth of Scripture remains meaning this that that the, the the moral claims of god notice what i just said the moral righteous claims of god are always before us jesus says here you need a superior righteousness he said this that if unless you get this superior righteousness you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven now i know me and i hope i know you i want to go to heaven i want to go to heaven when i die I get tired of this old world that, that hates God, hates his word, hates his church. 
and, and loves what they do, and we want to win them, and we love them, and we want to be a friend of sinners, but heaven is my destination. But I know this, there's a kind of righteousness that will never get me there, and that's self-righteousness. Righteousness on my own, I'll never get there. Good works, trying to keep, uh, you know, score, score, I'll never get there. But there is a perfect righteousness that is offered humanity. And it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. And he offers it to us if we'll trust in him. But he said, you got to have that. And we can have it. We can have it. Him who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. But, but what do we mean when we say law? What do we mean when we say Old Testament law? Because he, here's where the confusion lies. I would, if you said we're not under law, and I've read that, it's so not under law, we're under grace. So here's what I would say. If we're not under law, what part of the law? Because there's a whole part of the Old Testament that is the ceremonial law. There's a part of the Old Testament that is the civil law. There's a part of the law that's the moral commands of God. There's a part of the law that has to do with dietary laws. And I can tell you, I ain't been following those, by the way. Just let me just say that. I need to get down on this altar. I hadn't been following that. I didn't even follow. I, didn't, I broke that this morning. Come on, amen. Some of you did when you ate your sugary cereal. I would be very clear with you today. We have no obligation to keep the ceremonial laws. Because Jesus fulfilled all those. Every type. Every shadow. The bulls, the lambs, the grain offerings, all the festivals, all of those things. We are, I have no desire to fulfill the ceremonial laws. I'm not under law. We have no obligation to keep... The civil laws that governed the elect nation of Israel that were very specific to them. There were certain things they couldn't mix their clothing in with wool and, and, and other garments. There were certain particular things that had to do with them being a, a, a prophetic, visually prophetic people. We're not under those civil laws of the nation of Israel. I'm not under the dietary laws. Come on, everybody ought to say amen for that. Food is clean, you know, just pray over it and pray that pray the calories out of it. However, I want to be very clear this morning. God's moral laws are always binding upon us. His ethical moral teachings that have been repeated for us in the new covenant are binding upon believers today what is the purpose of God's law I mean I cannot be saved by the law the law will not save anyone and and, and Romans 7 says Paul said there's nothing wrong with the law and I'm paraphrasing he said this now I'm quoting the law is holy the law is righteous the law is good how many know God's laws are holy righteous and good there's nothing wrong with the law it's beautiful it's perfect but you know what's what's wrong I'm wrong something's wrong with us something's wrong with humanity because of Adam's fall, we're going to get to Romans 5 in our teaching very soon in, as we go through Romans. But because of Adam's sin, a sin nature has been parted to every human being. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We have violated God's laws. We violate his holy commands. We even violate our own consciences. Nothing wrong with the law. The law is given to show us God's will. The law is given to show us God's holy nature. The law is given to convict us of sin. It's like a mirror that we look into and we see there's a smudge on our face. And, and we say, oh, I need to get that smudge off my face. But I can't get it off by self-righteousness. But the blood of Jesus can get it off. Even in Old Testament times. See, now here's another misunderstanding. And you've probably heard this too. You know, Pastor, they were saved by the law in the Old Testament. And they're saved by the, we're saved by grace in the New Testament. Dear friends, no one has ever been saved by the deeds of the law. No one. They were saved in the Old Testament, in a sense, just like we're saved in the New Testament. No one could keep the law in the Old Testament. Why do you think they had a sacrificial system? Why do you think millions of gallons of blood were spilled as they offered all those lambs? Because nobody could keep that law. They were looking for the Savior. We're looking back to the Savior. If they had faith in the Old Testament, which they did, Abraham did, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That was before the law. The sacrificial system was the way they expressed their faith in Jesus because all that pointed to Jesus. When I preach at the cross, when I preach that I believe in Jesus alone, I'm looking back and saying, I believe in the same blood the Old Testament folks did, except they were looking this way, I'm looking that way. They were looking for it to be done. He said on the cross, it's finished, it's done. Law can't save us. But that sacrificial system under the law pointed them to Christ. And that sacrificial system enabled them to maintain their fellowship with God until Jesus died on the cross for the sins that they had committed. What does it mean to be under grace? Under grace means this, that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We have been, the power of sin has been broken off of our lives. Now I have a new nature indwelt by the Spirit of God and that we are empowered now to live in a way that pleases God. But we're not doing it from the outside. We're not doing it from legalism. We're living for God by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, everybody say verse 3, here it is, listen, for what the law could, for what the law could not do, what the law could not do. The law gives a command, do this and don't do this, but because of the weakness of our own human natures, we could never fulfill them. But notice what happens, what the law could not do, in that it was weak, through the flesh, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that I'm under grace, I have, an, I have someone inside of me who empowers me. His name is Holy Spirit. He gives us the power and the ability to live a life 
that pleases God. And when we do fail the Lord, and we do from time to time, we go back to the Lord. We ask him to forgive us and wash us, and he gets us going again as we seek to trust in the Lord. Now listen. There's a great misunderstanding. Sin still matters, even though we're under new covenant. Sin is very, very serious to our holy God. New Testament Christianity does not allow for lawlessness. Do you realize that under old covenant, for willful, high-handed sin, there was no offering? You look at all the offerings. If you did this, if you did that, a piece of all kind of offerings for every kind of thing, almost to the point if you stumped your toe, you know, they do this and that and the other. But for high-handed rebellion against God, there was no offering. It was akin to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No, no, no offering for that. And now we have a better covenant. And the new covenant, as new covenant Christians. He doesn't allow for high-handed lawlessness. I won't read it for time's sake, because I'm going to get to this last part. When you see what I'm going to go through, you go, oh, we're going to get through with that. Yes, we're going to get done. Before the coming of the Lord, we'll get done. Amen? Okay. Notice what Paul said. Paul's talking about what Jesus has done in our heart in grace. He says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid. Literally, it's so strong. May it never be. It's just like, may it never be. Are you crazy saying? You think that's what New Testament, may it never be. How can you who died to sin, who were buried with Christ and raised in the resurrection of life, how can you continue in sin? Sin's power has been broken, that dominating power over your life. In Romans 6.22, it says, Romans 6.22 on the screen and, but now, having been set free from sin, having become slaves to God, you have your fruit in holy, to holiness. Where's the, where's it going to lead us? Look at this. Holiness. You have your fruit in holiness. Guess where we're headed? To the end, everlasting life. But listen to what Paul said, a life of sin. He says, but the wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. Holiness leads to heaven. Now, Christians, as I've said, are not sinless. When we don't maintain our faith, our walk with God, we do sin. But little John said, I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Aren't you glad for his patience? I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Come on, I'm grateful for the patience and mercy of God. Oh, where would we be? I want you to notice something about the law. We're talking about the law today. Where's law fit? How does old covenant, new covenant fit together? I want you to notice something very striking. When did God give Israel the law? Before they came out of Egypt or after they came out of Egypt? And of course, you know the answer. 
He gave them the law after they came out of Egypt. They weren't over there in Egypt going, okay, we're going to keep all the laws of God and we're going to earn our way across that river. We're going to earn our way across the Red Sea. It could never be. We're not saved by the works. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of works lest anyone should boast. But guess what? After they came across the river, God says, I've got a plan for you now. I have some things I want you to do. God delivered them out of Egypt before they received the law. But the law... Law is not a moral code that we gain acceptance for God. Law is not a lot of rule book that we keep that, to gain access to salvation and to the grace of God. But, but after we're delivered out of Egypt, after we have been saved by the mercies of Christ, after we've been washed, after we've been dwelt by the Holy Spirit, he gives us these commands and they reveal the evidence that we are saved. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have been passed away. All things have become new. Look at Titus. This is powerful about what grace really does. This is Titus chapter 2 verse 11. It says here, he says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us new covenant. This new covenant now, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. This is what God's grace does. We can never earn salvation, but he gives it as a gift. And the grace of God in us manifests with righteous living from the inside out. Obedience is an expression of our gratitude to God. He said this. In Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your reasonable service. So here's where I want to finish the last part of this. What about the Ten Commandments? Are we obligated to obey the Ten Commandments? Or, I mean, what about those Ten Commandments? Exodus 20. Do you realize that all but one of those commands are restated in the New Testament? The only ones not restated is the fourth command. Do you remember that one? Keep the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath was the last day of the week. What is today? First day of the week. We don't keep the Jewish Sabbath. That was yesterday. For 2,000 years, Christians have been meeting on the last day of the week. We've been meeting on the first day of the week. When did Jesus raise from the dead? On the first day of the week. So what we're doing is we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. That's what we're doing today. It's the day of resurrection. I'll get back to that. So what the Ten Commandments do is they summarize the entirety of the law. They capsulize the entirety of the law. You realize there's 613 commands? The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments relate to our relationship with God. The last six commands relate to our relationship with human beings. And Jesus boiled them down to two. Love God 
with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's think about our nation today on this Independence Weekend. I propose to you that our nation would be in much better shape today if we had applied the Ten Commandments. In our nation, in our lives, in our families. But by violating God's moral commands, we have reaped the whirlwind. Look at how empty many of our young people are. Look at our homes are broken. Look at our, look at our economy right now. Look at our moral condition right now. Look at all the division in our land today. Listen, we, we've, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Look at, look at the fruit of where we are today. Look at the confusion, the destruction. Look at the economy, the relationships, the society. Look at in many personal lives, many even in your family. I believe that the answer to our nation on this Independence Day is Jesus Christ and his words. He has been the answer in the past. He is the answer today. And he will forever be the answer. Jesus Christ and his words are the answer. James 1.25, I read in our text, it is the law that gives freedom. What is the law that gives freedom? It is not the Old Testament law that we're trying to keep and don't have the help of God, but it's this. The law that gives freedom is the believer who's been set free from sin by the grace of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live obedient before God. It is the law that gives freedom. True freedom is not doing anything you want to do. True freedom is a life pleasing to God. In this nation, we have ignored the word of God more and more. Has it helped us? Are we better off today? No. I want to end this message by listing these ten. The first command is you shall have no other. I don't have time to read the whole thing. It's in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17. I'll quote this partially as I go through it for time's sake. You shall have no other God before me. Say that with me. You shall have no other God before me. Verse 3. This forbids polytheism. Polytheism is a belief in many gods. Has forsaken, has forsaken, has forsaking the one true God, the God that we have on our money, in God we trust. That wasn't just any God. When they put that on that money, that was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just any God. It was the God of the B-I-B-L-E. It was God Yahweh. How are we doing forsaking him? We're not doing too good. Look at the false gods of our nation. I won't list them all. But they led, led us into moral defeat. They led us into corruption. We need to get back to the one true God. We need to get back to the one true God. He will help us. He will help us. His name is Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. His name shall be called Jesus. And he will save you from your sins. We need to get back. Jesus said this in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may believe in you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's only one God. Every other God that's made up in the minds of men or by demon spirits, they are not gods. They are false gods. They are imposter gods. The God of the Bible is the only God. And his name is Father. He has a son, Jesus Christ, sinless 
and he is Holy Spirit, you shall have no gods before you. You shall not make an idol. Idolatry is one of the major problems in our nation. And people don't even know it because they don't like, like necessarily worship like a statue or a wood or stone. But the idolatry is a tremendous deception in the nation and in many progressive churches. Here's why God gave this command. Are you listening closely? Hurry. Listen closely. This command is given out of God's passion not to be misrepresented. We preachers are going to give a high accounting to holy God one day if we misrepresent him. And this is God's passion. You shall not make an idol. I don't want to be misrepresented. God wants us to know him in his truth. God wants us to worship him truly. Jesus said God wants those to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is why false teaching is so deadly. Because false teaching distorts who God is. There's preachers today that will not dare mention the judgment of God from their pulpits. They will not mention that. They don't want to offend the tithers. They don't want to offend the big money givers. But what they're doing is they're building an idol when they don't preach the whole truth of God. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Always. Always. Every time Israel fell into idolatry, all of a sudden they're in all this wicked immorality. Listen, our concept of God must be based not on some imagination that we have that God's just kind of cool and he's kind of a nice guy and, you know, he's not like that mean God back in the Old Testament that was tearing stuff up. He's just kind of really nice now and he just tolerates all of our nonsense. You better wake up, friend. He is an awesome God. He is a God to be feared. And the word of God says he's a consuming fire. Here's what happens. Romans 1, quickly. Romans 1, please, quickly. Romans 1, verse 21. Here's what happens when we start getting into idolatry. We start changing and misrepresenting who God is. 121, quickly. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful because they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were dark. And they professed themselves to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image make like corruptible men, birds, Four-footed animals and creeping things. There it is. They changed the image of God. They made an idol. They imagined him to be different than he was. And where did it lead? Always leads to immorality. Look at the next verse. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They fell into sexual immorality. A flawed view of God will persist for generations in, in Exodus 25, it talks about generation after generation after generation will be influenced by that. But also on the other side of that, Exodus 20 and 6 says, a proper view of God will, and I'm paraphrasing, and, and it will bless generations to come. If we will teach our children correctly about who God is and what he wants and who he is, it can, it can bless this church for generations to come. Let's keep our doctrine right of who God is. I'll go quick quick now. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Exodus 27. Yahweh is used 6,828 times in the Old Testament. God does not want us to use his name lightly. I want to be honest with you. I want to be transparent with you. I hear so many Christians use God's name in vain, and I get sick at my stomach. 
I really do. I'm talking about Christians. Not just leave the world out. Oh, and they say J-E-S-U-S. Or dear L-O-R-D. That's using God's name in vain. Not to, you know, not to even say that people use his name for a curse word. This, when you use his name in vain, it means flippantly, insincerely, or irreverently. You're just using it as a common kind of, you blurt it out. And what you've actually done is you've blasphemed. This is how serious it is. See, we forgot all this stuff. We think that we're not under some kind of rule. This is how serious it is. You realize that blasphemy of God's name in the Old Testament was punishable by death. That's how serious God's name is. I would just say this in passing. God's name is holy. Let's don't use it lightly. When we sing in this when we sing about the name of Jesus and the name of the Lord Yahweh, let's let's Come on, amen. Let's, let's be sober. This is God. Who, Paul said he dwells in unapproachable light. He's so holy and awesome. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. As I've said, we don't keep the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath, but we keep, we keep the day of worship, the day of resurrection. And I would also just, a little caveat, a little, not a caveat, but a little aside here, that in, the, in creation it was six days of work and then God rested. Our, our families would be much better if we worked six days and had a day of worship and rest and really stopped doing all the things. It would be really good for our bodies and our families. Verse 12, I'm, I'm going to get through with this. Number five, I'll go quick. Honor your mother, father and mother, verse 12. Now, the word honor in this text is an intensive word. It is a very strong word, and it means to show respect. Parents are the instruments of our lives, and I have to tell you, I've repented of this. I've repented of this. I wasn't always respectful to my mom and dad. But I can tell you that right now, this day, I am a good son to my, both my mom and my dad. I've repented. I've, I honor them. Are they perfect? No. No, they're still not perfect. That's not my job to correct them. My job is honor. My job is respect. My job is to care for them. I talked to my mom this morning. I've repented the way I was as I was a kid. That was, I was wicked. But I want to be honorable to my parents. They met my physical needs. They, they at least took me to church. They didn't take me to the right one, but they at least took me to church. Come on, amen. They protected me. They educated me. Family was a priority. You realize many of the festivals were the Passover you were supposed to do that with your family and all your kids around at your kitchen table. You were supposed to slay the lamb and eat the lamb. And this is about that, that he's going he's gonna to take us through by the blood. Because family instruction was to be nurtured at home. That's what the responsibility was. Leviticus 9.3 actually mentions when it talks about revering your parents. It mentions in a, in a male predominant society, it mentions the mother first. Isn't that interesting? In, in Leviticus 19 and 3, do we are to revere our mother and our father? They're very strong. Verse 6, or number 6, you shall not murder. This does not preclude killing in war, nor does it preclude killing for judicial reasons, the government. I do believe in the death penalty in some cases. But it, the word is rash, it's or R-A-S. A-H in the transliteration, and it really better translated murder. God cared so much. And we're talking about manslaughter. We're talking about premeditated murder. 
God was so careful to guard life. He didn't even want someone to die by mistake. He said, life is precious. You shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Integrity in relationships is vital for a healthy society. Too many divorces, and many of those divorces, and maybe most of them, is because of adultery. God is crystal clear about sex. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. The marriage is undefiled, but, but adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. Hebrews 13, verse 4. In marriage, monogamy, faithfulness. Before you're married, chastity. You read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, and it's very clear. You are to, to, to control your body. And he who rejects the command to be, he said, I don't want you to be committing sexual immorality. And he said this, he said, he said, he who rejects this command, and you read it in verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, he is rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's how strong it is. And this command would also preclude all, all uh, illicit sexual relationships, homosexuality, lesbianism, fornication, adultery, all of this, and whatever new stuff, you know, the, the things get longer and longer, all the letters, you know how, what I'm talking about. You shall not steal. This command prohibits stealing of any kind. Ephesians 4.28, let him who steal, steal no more. Last evening, somebody pulled up to our job site and stole 21 bags of grout that we're all going to have to pay for again. Just pulled up. We got it on camera. 7 o'clock, daylight. Just backed his truck up, loaded 21, uh, 21 bags of that. So I don't know how much it costs. I know it's more than it used to be. Got to pay for all that again. Thou shalt not steal. That, it, that gentleman will pay a heavy price. That'll be the most expensive grout he ever got. This command is a concern for personal property, but it's more than that. Listen to me. Listen to me. It, it's concerns about what stealing does in the community, how it destroys trust, and how it destroys relationship. Almost done. What is the penalty for theft? What is the penalty for theft in the Old Testament? Is it jail? No. Restitution. Not jail. It's restitution. Because Exodus 22 and 9, see, restitution was not punishment alone. But it was to restore harmony in the community. It was to store, restore harmony by balancing the books. Thou shalt not steal. They had to pay back, and they had to pay back more. I won't go into it. Exodus 22, 9. Two more. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. False testimony. Malicious statement intended to degrade someone else. We need to guard the reputation of others. Yes. Lying is a problem in our nation. Christians should not lie. Half-truths, false impressions, exaggerating. Those are all lies. Thou shalt not lie. Last one has to do with the heart. They all have to do with the heart. But here it says, you shall not covet. This deals with the heart. This deals with the mind. Covetousness is a desire to have something that belongs to another. It includes jealousy, envy, selfishness, and greed. Here's what I know about a covetous person. A covetous person is someone who says, I'm not going to trust God as my provider. 
God says, you shall not covet. Why? I close. God says, don't covet. I am your source. Do not covet. I will meet every need that you have. Do not covet. Be content. Be content with what you have. Be content with where you are. I am your helper, says the Lord in Hebrews. Hallelujah. The perfect law of liberty. Our nation, and I would add the church, would be much better if we'd follow the ethical commands of God. I want you to stand with me. We're going to sing this song again. And I want us to pray for our nation. I pray that uh, my, my hope and prayer for you is that tomorrow you have a wonderful day on 4th. My wife and I, Mama and I are going to go up to see some friends in Oklahoma, southern Oklahoma. On a big old ranch up there. Big old, say big old 400 acre ranch. Got cows and horses and whatever else. I want you to have a wonderful day. But let's don't forget our nation. Let's don't forget the God who gave us freedom. He deserves all the glory. And by the way, dear ones, we are the church. We are to be the reflection of his manifold glory. Letting our light shine. We're, we're, we're seeking to make a difference in our community. We're moving toward expansion. Amen? Amen? We need all of you to help us. And you are. I'm so proud of you. I see you growing. I see us growing in our faith. I see us growing in our love for the Lord.